you, Riley. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mitch. I'm a lay pastor here at First United Methodist Church, and it is my honor and privilege this morning to have the opportunity to deliver the message to you. And um, as we begin this week, the second week of the season of Advent, or season of Lent, season of Lent, man, it's still snow on the ground, guys. Um, season of Lent, it means English word spring season, old English word spring season, and uh, we're, we should be in the second week of this, I thought. Uh, it says 40 days leading up to Easter, not counting Sundays, so if you're trying to do math until Easter Sunday, you got to subtract the Sundays, and it really isn't very helpful at all. Um, but we're going to prepare to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and in doing so, we're going to be diving deep into the events of the crucifixion. Jesus' death on the cross. We're calling it cross examination. Um, the cross is one of the most universally recognized symbols in the world. But do we understand its meaning? So our hope is through this Lenten season, we would emerge with a deeper grasp of the cross's meaning, its beauty, brutality, significance. And in this cross examination where a witness is... Uh, has already testified its question to verify credibility. And each week, we're going to be investigating uh, different questions. And today's question is, um, what did Jesus mean when he said, uh, take up your cross and follow me? So we read these words of Jesus, uh, recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 34. We read, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So, looking back, leading up to verse 22, looking back through chapter 8 in preceding order, Jesus predicts his death. Before that, Peter identifies him, declares him the Messiah, and before that, Jesus heals a blind man in two parts. So I would like to start setting our stage for our conversation and topic this morning of taking up our cross back in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside of the village. He took this blind man aside out of the village, off privately. So he's taking this blind man aside, and, and when, when he, Jesus, when he spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees, walking around. So does anybody have corrective lenses and could maybe identify with this of super blurry, super blurry vision? You vision, the man went from no sight to blur. That's exciting um, to this blurry vision. Vision. It's not clarity, but, but it's definitely progress from what he was experiencing. So once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. Then the man's eyes were opened. Sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. You now see fully, go a different 
direction. So Jesus, I'll stop here a minute in our scripture. Jesus only heals this guy halfway at first. And I couldn't find anywhere where he did this before with miracles especially pertaining to blindness and healing, because this isn't the only account of healing the blind. Was he just not on his A-game, not feeling it? Or is there some more meaning here? I'd like to think that there is and suggest that there is. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals two blind men at once, same time. John chapter 9, he puts mud on a blind man's eyes, he washes the mud off, and now he sees but it's not so this time. And I think it's an important nugget that you can keep, um, keep for your own investigations and cross-examinations to hang on to. Because I think Jesus wants us to hang on to this. And we have it recorded through Mark for it to be with us here in Scripture. But next I want to move on to what's continuing happening along this road as the disciples are traveling with Jesus. So immediately following this, they've left this conversation. Um, they've healed. Jesus has healed the blind man. They're, they're, they're there together, and now they move on. And Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So they're just, we're, we're just continuing on. This is all you know, in the moment. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? And they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Now they're saying you're like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was around, um, they, were, they, weren't the same, they weren't the same person. But John the Baptist um, was a prophet who came to point the way to the coming Messiah. And they say, some people say you're like John the Baptist. You're here pointing the way to the Messiah. Then the, the disciples also say, some others say you're Elijah. Elijah the prophet returned. He's going to return to point the way. And still others say you're a prophet. So most folks are saying Jesus is a prophet, but there's no definitive answer. So then Jesus says, verse 29, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. So, Jesus agrees when Peter declares him the Messiah. This is explosive news. This is mind-blowing confirmation to the disciples who've been thinking this, but nobody said it yet, and now Peter said it, and Jesus confirms it, and they are just overwhelmed. I mean, this is all in this moment. They're just, this is happening right now. You are the Messiah. This is exciting. The Jewish worldview at this time, and they're under Roman rule, but the Jewish cultural belief is that the Messiah is going to be a king who comes and delivers them from the Roman um, rule with a sword and becomes a political, powerful ruler, that's their view of what the Messiah is going to do. And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, shh, 
And then, right then, this is all in the same conversation. We go on to the next part. This is where Jesus begins to teach them. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that he, Jesus, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priest, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter hears rejected and killed. I was just going down this concept of conquering hero. And now you follow up with rejected and killed. And he gets upset and pulls Jesus aside. It's like, no, 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 no. But chapter 33 or verse, sorry, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus is correcting, attempting to correct this longstanding sacred belief that what the Messiah is coming to do. He's saying, you're thinking about being justified and uplifted from a worldly perspective, Peter. God's concern is of spiritual atonement. Remember just moments ago, we're walking away from a man receiving sight. He got partial sight, and then he received full sight and saw everything clearly. Jesus is kind of saying, hey, you know, Peter, you're, you're in the fuzzy stage. It's kind of blurry. It's kind of blurry. Jesus tells them that he is the Messiah, but they can only partially see what this means. But now the stage is set. We have this context leading up to um, this backdrop for what, what's coming next. So they just learned that he's the Messiah. He will not establish this earthly rule, but instead he will be rejected and killed and rise again. And now he continues. Verse 34, this is where we're going to find our scripture verse for the day. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with holy angels. What does he mean by this? This is the first time he has mentioned a cross. But they all know what a cross is. It's a murderous Roman torture device. He just predicted his death 
and resurrection and doubles down with the very means by which his execution will take place. Then he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, they already think they are his disciples, right? They are his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And he's not talking to just his disciples. He called the whole crowd in, all those that were around. He's speaking to everyone, not this select few. So how are we to interpret this statement and how are they to interpret it themselves? So in this first century, the cross wasn't just the symbol of pain and suffering. It was a symbol of death. What Jesus was telling them is that they needed to put to death their own plans and desires and then turn their lives over to him and do his will every day. You see, Jesus doesn't simply call us to believe that he exists or even to believe that he can save us. He calls us to commit our whole lives to him, to trust him alone for our salvation and then follow him as his disciples. So taking up your cross means we must be willing to first put our identity in Christ, identify with him, identify with his death to worldliness, identify with his sacrifice for our salvation, identify with Christ, be willing to put our worldly motives aside. And then number two, we must trust, taking up our cross means we trust that our salvation is through grace and can be only attained through grace, not through the law, not by doing good works. We can never be made good enough. We're not good enough, and we can't get there apart from his grace. And thirdly, because of this salvation and because of this identity we have placing it in Christ, we have the opportunity an obligation to live a life modeled after Jesus. Now, this isn't easy, but nothing worth doing ever seems to be. So Jesus went to the cross willingly for me, for you, willingly. He is our greatest example that you will ever find of living selflessly and living selflessly for God. We find on the night that Jesus was arrested prior to his crucifixion, he knows it's coming. It's fulfilling prophecies and predictions that he himself has declared are going to happen. And he's in the garden praying. We find this in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus is praying. He says, Father, if it is your will, away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
He's saying, God, when he says, take this cup away from me, that cup's referencing to his, to his crucifixion. The cup he must drink from is, this, is the example of the suffering God's calling him to do and participate in willingly on behalf of you and me. And he's saying, God, I am scared. Is this the only way? And if so, I'm in. I'm willingly deciding to go along with your plan. This is leading by example perfected. He's turning over everything to the Lord to guide him and lead him the way he knows he must go. Those of us who want to be Jesus' disciples must be willing to do what we are asked to do, what he's placed on our hearts to do. God asked Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. Am I willing, are you willing, are we willing to sacrifice our worldly things and pleasure and worldliness for Christ's mission? He died for you and he's asking you to live for him. He's asking for trusting obedience. He's asking for faith in the fuzzy and blurriness and trust and obey. So practically speaking, taking up your cross and following Jesus can take a lot of forms. A lot of forms here um, within our church. We, we take, a, um, you'll experience some of this if you're here with us. Next week we have some uh, new members we're welcoming into our congregation and this is a church of creating disciples, and we've kind of put some vocabulary around um, taking these um, steps into becoming disciples. And we can, we can um, take up our cross through prayers and presence and gifts and witness and service. Taking on and taking up your cross, you can first begin by prayerfully Centering yourselves on Christ's will for your life, not your own ambitions and goals, but lining yourself to Christ's mission for you to live out what he has planned for you to live out. I've got some examples of this um, taking on and taking up a cross. We got... Uh, I know there's a lot of teachers in here, but has anybody ever had a really good teacher? Just a teacher that was just, just brought everything, everything good out of them to the forefront. Um, you know, they didn't do it for that best teacher ever mug or to get their picture on a wall. That's not why they care so much. And when they have a higher goal in mind for a transformation of a life, that can transform um, communities and relationships. And when we take this um, Christ's call on our life is this opportunity to, to educate, um, to be um, led 
by Christ. And when, when educators and coaches and leaders take the Christian perspective to lead by examples of grace and love and mercy, they're taking up a cross to lead honestly in the way Christ would do. And that's not easy, is it? Anybody else spend two days this week playing teacher? I did. It's not easy. I don't know about you. Were grace and mercy and love the backdrop for your at-home curriculum this week? Did you approach everything that way? It probably wasn't unless you centered yourself and took up a cross to have a Christian, Christ-centered approach to your day. We have our friends are going to Westbrook today. Some folks out of this congregation are going to Westbrook today. We announced this morning to offer, offer service and worship and community to this uh, care facility right here in our community. They came and worshiped this morning here, and then we're going to take worship to them um, this afternoon. God's placed a call on the lives of those volunteers to do that, to go to respond and go serve those in the community. And they took up the cross to do that. I asked my friend Riley this morning to step up here and help this morning with uh, welcome and announcements. And that's not easy. If you've ever done public speaking, it's not a, it's not a lot something, you know, most people just jump into, but when there's a, when there's a call place for leadership and you respond to that call, it can be taking up your cross and helping Christ's mission. So the apostle Paul wrote, in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing, which is your spiritual gift. We're calling to die to ourselves daily as a living sacrifice to the Lord. As a living sacrifice. And the problem with that being a living sacrifice is that we always keep wanting to crawl off the altar. It's through our free will that we must choose to die to our worldliness and ourselves to, to, so that we can live for Christ. We have to choose that personal worldly death. So does this decision to die to ourselves and take up our cross, is this just a one-time thing, Jesus? We just do this once and be done with it? Well, Luke's gospel has a very small word that's very, very powerful. He includes in his account. It's daily. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, it's the same story, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. We have this opportunity and obligation to serve the Lord, wait for it, daily. If you failed yesterday, good news folks, today is a new day. 
another chance. A second chance, another day, and every day we have this chance to take up a cross, to identify in Christ every day, daily. Identify in Christ. Identify with him as your, as your identity. I'm not a pastor or a father or, or a baseball coach or any of those things first. I'm, I'm son of God first. I'm Christ's disciple first. And then with that identification, I accept the forgiveness that only he can have for my life and my shortcomings and my failures. I have to accept that there's no other way to be made right with God other than accepting accepting that. I can't get there from here. I'm not good enough without accepting that forgiveness. And then I'm called to sacrificially love the humanity he died for. Do you see it clearly? Peter didn't at first. He misunderstood the Messiah. And these things don't come, clarity doesn't come all at once. There was this period of time that the blind man, everything was blurry. Now it was very short for this blind man here. He was in the dark for a long time. And then he had a short period of blurriness and then clarity. You know, Peter's blurriness, you can continue reading in the scriptures, Peter's blurriness is blurry for a while. My personal story, very blurry for a very long time. But do you see it clearly when you let Jesus correct your vision? For Jesus' mission to be fulfilled, he had to die for us. For our mission as disciples to be fulfilled, we must pick up our cross daily and live for him. We must willfully choose to not go back to where we came from, but instead go in the direction he sends us. Amen? So Lord... Today we come to this place seeking, seeking clarity and understanding that things can be blurry. But your salvation is found in your willingness to die for us. We pray this morning over our ability to understand the cross, understand your sacrifice, understand your redeeming power of resurrection and our ability to be made right with God through the grace you offer us, knowing that, that taking up a cross is an obligation and a responsibility to living out your mission on our life. It's how we live out our representation of identity in you. It's how we embody embody your presence and being the conduit through which your love and grace and mercy flows forth into this world to connect and inspire and build up 
those around us, the next generation, the one sitting next to us, the one far away, to be your shining light. see like you have helped us see. Lord, I just pray for anyone who's in the in the blurriness. This morning they may make a step closer to clarity to see more of your call on their life and and feel feel your welcoming, inviting call to to be your disciple to commit to you with our whole hearts to your mission